rather than discharging it into the ocean, we consider wastewater a resource, not a waste. By the time it's gone through our treatment process, it's nearly distilled water. With climate change and everything else, those sources of supply are very uh, variable moving forward into, in, into the future. Uh, so it's, it's really up to us to develop these local supplies. We need water. With a growing population, climate change, and more humans turning on the taps, our need for water over the next three decades is projected to increase up to 30%. What if I told you that one solution starts in our sewers? I'm Jay Familietti. On this episode of What About Water, we're adding wastewater to the recycling stream, going from toilet to tap. Mike Marcus is the general manager of the Orange County Water District. He's worked there for 33 years, and he manages this incredible water transformation. I got to know Mike when I was at UC Irvine, where I became a huge fan of the work that he was doing. We've reached him in Fountain Valley, California. Mike, welcome to What About Water? Thank you very much, Jay. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. So great to have you. So great to see you again. Can't wait for a chance to get down to uh, Orange County and tour that amazing facility. Um, I don't know if you remember, Mike, but I used to tell people, it's like Disneyland. You should put you should put the groundwater replenishment system on your like on your tour of Southern California. This place is so cool. So let's talk about that. What aspects of the water crisis, what led you to develop this facility? And specifically, I'm talking about the groundwater replenishment system. Yeah, well, actually, we down here in Southern California, for those that may not be aware, we, we live in a desert. We, we only get about 13 inches of rain per year. And what the Orange County Water District does is manage a very large groundwater basin in central and northern Orange County. So it's up to us to find additional supplies, sources of water to replenish the groundwater basin. And uh, we can't rely on Mother Nature to do that, so we have to find additional sources. And that's why we turn to recycled water. And our board was very visionary in the mid-90s to identify this and to see treating wastewater to a very high degree and using that treated wastewater as a source of supply for the groundwater basin. So that was kind of the genesis of the development of the project. So, you know, the usual challenges that Southern California faces, growing population, lots of people, changing climate, uh, not very much rainfall to begin with, and, and all of these issues with not as much snow, that's a huge problem. So when you say wastewater, where exactly is this water coming from? Well, it actually comes from our neighbor next door, the Orange County Sanitation District. And the Orange County Sanitation District treats all of the municipal uh, and domestic wastewater in central and northern Orange County, which serves about 2.5 million people. Uh, so they take the wastewater and they treat it. So they go through it through a primary and secondary type treatment process, which makes the wastewater safe enough to discharge into the ocean. But rather than discharging it into the ocean, we intercept that water after it's been treated. So as you mentioned before, we consider wastewater a resource, not a waste. Uh, we take that wastewater, 
uh, secondary treated, and then we run it through an advanced purification process consisting of microfiltration, reverse osmosis, and advanced oxidation. By the time it's gone through our treatment process, it's nearly distilled water. In fact, uh, at the end of the tours, as, as you well know, we give people a taste of the water. But we then take that highly purified water and we put it back into the ground. So we put it back into the groundwater basin and then the retail water agencies in the area pump it out of the groundwater basin and goes directly into their distribution system serving their customers. That's, that's pretty amazing. So what's the capacity these days of the groundwater replenishment system? Well, the current capacity is 100 million gallons per day, and that's enough water to provide 850,000 people per year uh, water. And uh, we, we started out at 70 million gallons per day. So uh, we, actually, we actually started the project back in the mid-90s, and we were pilot testing the technologies at that point in time. So uh, in the mid-90s, microfiltration hadn't been used uh, on wastewater. It had been used primarily on surface water as treatment. Uh, so we pilot tested, wanted to make sure it worked on wastewater. Uh, and, and then the project evolved in the early 2000s. Uh, we started, decided to move forward with the project. And our first phase went into operation in January of 2008 uh, at a capacity of 70 million gallons per day with the ability to expand it ultimately to 130 million gallons. We've always been saying kind of the first quarter of 2023 will be at our ultimate capacity of 130 million gallons per day, which will be enough water for a million people. That's simply amazing, Mike. It's so great that you've been able to uh, increase the capacity like that. So if I were to drop by, would I be seeing active construction? I remember, you know, this place, just to describe it to people, we'll put some pictures on the website. It is like squeaky clean. It looks so futuristic. I used to also say, so in addition to telling people, you know, you should put it on your, you know, when you're touring to Disneyland and like Universal Studios, you got to go to the groundwater replenishment system. I also used to say like, this place looks like a set for like a James Bond movie. It's so futuristic. Is it still like that? It's just getting bigger? It is. It's really cool. Uh, yeah, and, and you're right. Movie studios have kind of looked around to utilize the facility, and we've actually had a couple uh, movies shot here on our campus. But it still is that way. We made sure with the that through these final expansions, we're using the same type of equipment, so it all looks the same. From an operational point of view, it's all the same. So it's obviously, yes, it still has that futuristic look. And uh, yes, you will see some uh, construction going on if you were to visit us in the, in the coming weeks. I might drop in on you, Mike. Yeah, you should. We'd yeah. love it. Um, this all sounds great. Can you put it into perspective in terms of cost and maybe compare it to, you know, readily available water from Metropolitan Water District or, you know, desalination, which I want to ask you about later? For, for us, we're able to produce the water at an equivalent cost of imported water. So imported water, for those that don't know, in California, Southern California, we rely primarily on water outside of Southern California. So the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California brings water in from the Colorado River in Northern California. But with climate change and everything else, those sources of supply are very variable moving forward into the future. So it's, it's really up to us to develop these local supplies. 
The cost of groundwater, I should say, is about half the cost of met water. So it's very important for us to find sources of supply so we can continue to utilize the groundwater basin. As far as the cost of the recycled water, it's right now equivalent to the cost of met water. And, and our costs will continue to be lower as, as uh, MET has its challenges, its costs are going to go higher, ours will remain a little bit flatter. Uh, so we, we have a more sustainable source of supply, uh, certainly, and one that over time will actually cost lower than imported water. Now, when you compare that to desalinated water, desalinated water is right now about two and a half times what MET water is. Uh, it probably is the most expensive uh, supply that would be available. Now, now it is available, and obviously we have an ocean right uh, right next to us. We're uh, we're down here along the coast, but at, at the current time, you, you know, we always say we should conserve first, recycle next, and ultimately, if we ever need any additional water supply, we do have the ocean, we have the technology, but it is the most costly. You know, I think that's really an important point, the idea of conservation first and decreasing demand rather than trying to increase supply. And so it's, you know, it's a challenge to get people to do that. But you mentioned the ocean, and I wanted to just drill down a little bit on whether you're still using groundwater replenishment system water as a barrier to seawater intrusion. We are. And back in the mid-70s, started seeing the uh, seawater come into the groundwater basin. So we're a coastal aquifer, we're, we're connected to the ocean. And as the seawater started coming in, we feared that it would ultimately contaminate the groundwater basin. So in the late 70s, we built a seawater barrier along the coast, about five miles inland. And we started injecting highly treated wastewater at that time. In fact, we had a facility here on site called Water Factory 21. And Water Factory 21 was the first facility in the world to use reverse osmosis to treat wastewater. So we've been using that technology for a long time, using reverse osmosis, and then take that water, inject it into the ground, and, and form a barrier to keep the seawater from coming inland. So right now, about 20% of the water that we produce goes into the, injected into the barrier, and the other 80% is in a pipeline that we built from Fountain Valley to Anaheim, which is about 14 miles, up to our recharge facilities. So that water then goes into these big, like lakes, they're actually recharge ponds, and that water naturally filters back down into the groundwater basin, giving us that additional supply of water. So I want to sort of paint a visual picture. So it sounds like you are taking about 25% of that water and actually like building an underground wall, mm -hmm. right, along the coast, an underground barrier, wall of water that's keeping the seawater out, right? Absolutely so, correct. So that's, that's cool. And then you've got a pipeline that's basically going up to near, you know, Los Angeles Angels baseball stadium, right? Up, it's up, yeah, it's well, up in that I, I, I still like to refer to them as the Anaheim Angels. As the Anaheim <laughs> Angels, I, I agree. I just wanted to sound like I knew what I was talking about. But yeah, so it's over near Angels Stadium and you're injecting it into the aquifer. And then it's kind of like when you go to a nice restaurant and there's a waiter with a pitcher and he's kind of standing near the table. He's going to fill up your glass. If it gets too low, he's going to fill it up, right? Mm -hmm. The waiter's going to fill up the glass. And that's sort of how I see the 
the groundwater replenishment system, at least in some of the tours that I had with you, you, you mm-hmm. talk about like, you know, the lower level, you know, the upper level. And so when it gets too low, we pour in more water. Is that, is that accurate? That is absolutely accurate. In fact, we just, we don't even wait for the, the glass to get low. We just continually pour water in, which allows us to, to maintain a higher amount of, that can be taken out. The more we put in, the more can be pumped out. And as I mentioned before, the economics are such that groundwater will always be cheaper than imported water. So, so very cool. So you're like a high-end restaurant that's always keeping the glass, always keeping the glass full. We like to think so. That's, that's pretty amazing. So let's talk about scaling this up. And, you know, the source, of course, of this water is, is human waste. And yet here we are in California, like the work that I do is global. And you look over the world and you look at these huge agricultural regions that use so much water. Is this sort of recycling, can it help large-scale agriculture? Or are we really talking about cities and municipal regions? You know, I, I think, Jay, we're, we're mainly talking about cities and municipal regions. I, I mean, when you go into those agricultural areas in California's Central Valley, you have very limited population. So they're not generating much, much wastewater flow. Yeah. Uh, we, we have the ability here being uh, highly urbanized to have a very large source of uh, supply that's uh, being treated by the sanitation district. And that allows us to do the type of recycling that we're doing. We're also blessed with a uh, groundwater basin. If we didn't have that groundwater basin, we would not be able to do the amount of recycling that we're doing. That's the other thing. I I mean, we were probably best positioned to do this project on this scale because we have the ability to then take the water and put it somewhere, put it in a groundwater basin. Or if we didn't have a a groundwater basin, we could have put it into a reservoir. But we had the groundwater basin, and that's that's what allowed us to build as large a facility as we we have. You know, we need to talk about the elephant in the room, which is the yuck factor. Mm. And, you know, people refer to this as toilet to tap, and a lot of people, you know, frankly, are just grossed out by it. How'd you get around that? Yeah, we, we, we have a hashtag, hashtag get over it. Uh, but, uh, you know, to answer your question directly, that was a big concern for us. I mean, when we were looking at this project, I mentioned before, we started in the early 2000s. And at that time, there were projects in Southern California that were trying to do the same thing. They were trying to do what we'll call indirect potable reuse projects. A very large one down in San Diego. There was also a couple up here in L.A., and all three of them never got off the ground because they became politicized, I might say, and people use that terminology that, hey, these water districts are forcing you to take water that, you know, you're flushing down the toilet. And uh, so our, our board, and I give them a lot of credit, they were quite visionary. When, when they first met to de- develop the project, it was 1997, I was there, I remember, Instead of talking about hiring an engineering firm or, uh, you know, any other type of consultant, they said, we need, to, we need to hire an outreach consultant. And that was the first consultant that we hired. And what we did is we did focus groups. We did polling. We found out what the issues are, what the questions were. Uh, and then we developed the talking points to be able to answer those questions 
And then we went out first to the people that were going to use the water. So we went out to our 19 retail water agencies and got letters of support from all of them. Uh, and then we worked the local, state, and federal elected officials. And we built kind of this political coalition, if you will. Uh, we went to the environmental community. So Coast Keepers, Surf Riders, Sierra Club, all these environmental, uh, they, they jumped right on board and supported the project. Health and medical was extremely important also. We had a, uh, a letter from a doctor from the Center for Disease Control, the CDC, down in Atlanta, Georgia. She wrote a letter of support early on to the project, and that resonated quite well. Uh, so we built this coalition, and then we went out and we spread the word. We evangelized. We had the consultant develop what we called a speakers bureau, and we went out and we talked to different civic organizations, chambers of commerce, other different uh, organizations, and explained exactly what it was that we were going to do. What were some of those talking points? What were you telling people? Well, we, we were talking about water supply. We were talking about the safety of the process using the reverse osmosis and how we had been doing that since the late 70s. We, we showed the, the need you know, we had to have a need as to why we were doing it and the technology that was behind it. I think one thing also that was very effective is when we were delivering these these talks to these di different civic organizations, we had our own staff giving those presentations. We, we didn't have the consultants and their fancy Italian suits running out and talking to people. They, they took engineers like myself, who are not trained in public speaking, by the way, uh, and they put us in front of people and had us explain the process. And, and I think what happened, Jay, was uh, we, we, we got a tremendous amount of public trust uh, in doing that. And that, that, that helped us out tremendously. As a result, we had no public opposition to the project. Uh, luckily, now we have the ability also to, to give tours of an existing facility. So we take all sorts of groups, uh, university students from some of the local universities. We give monthly public tours. Any group that wants a tour of the facility, we will give a tour of the facility. We also have a virtual tour. I'll, I'll give a plug. If you go to our website, ocwd.com, I give a uh, probably about a half hour, 45 minute virtual tour of the facility. And we need to educate people. We, we as a water community do a terrible job of educating the public. People turn on the faucet, the water comes out, they have no idea where that water comes from, for the most part. But all of the infrastructure behind that and just what it takes to bring water to their homes. It's magic. I thought it was magic. I thought you turned on the tap and it magically appeared, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, so I want to loop back on something. You've mentioned reverse osmosis a few times. Can you explain what this process is? Yeah, reverse osmosis, you're basically taking a thin type of plastic, a thin film, and uh, through high pressure, you're forcing the water molecules through that semi-permeable plastic membrane, we'll call it. What the reverse osmosis very effectively does is it... I always call it the workhorse of the treatment process because it, it removes the dissolved minerals, the viruses, and the pharmaceuticals out of the water. So it, it takes out most of the contaminants. There are some low-weight molecular organics that get through the RO, 
but our final step, the uh, advanced oxidation, destroys those low weight molecular organics. So, right. Uh, okay. Very very yeah. cool. So this is the same stuff that's used for desalination, right? So we're, we're you've been calling it RO, reverse osmosis. You're pushing water through a membrane or a very, very fine, almost a filter. And the stuff that's bigger than the holes in the filter gets left behind. Yep. No, that's exactly right. And uh, the reason that our, our process is less costly than, say, seawater desalination is because of the total dissolved solids in the water. So the, our water is less saline, let's say. It has less minerals, salts and minerals. Seawater has about 35 times the amount of, uh, of these minerals than the wastewater does. So it takes us less energy to force that water through the membranes. With seawater, it takes a lot more pressure, and that's where the cost really is, is, is in the energy. I know you're expanding. I also know that other places want to follow your lead. Who else is doing this kind of groundwater replacement? You know, probably the best example is the city-state of Singapore. Singapore, uh, it, it's actually kind of a funny story. When we were doing our pilot testing back in the mid-90s, Singapore visited us to see what we were doing. And we actually shared a lot of data that we had out of that which helped them lead to the development of uh, potable reuse in Singapore. They probably by far have done the most overall as far as potable reuse. Uh, they probably right now have a combined capacity, several different plants throughout the country in excess of 150 million gallons per day. Uh, and also a couple of very large projects on the book, Metropolitan Water District of Southern California in conjunction with the LA County Sanitation District is planning a 150 million gallon per day potable reuse project. And the city of LA, along with city sanitation, is looking at a equally large facility also uh, down at their Hyperion plant, a, a very large regional plant down near the uh, LA airport. So those two projects, it'll take them time. They're in the early stages. But what's interesting is both those projects may utilize the water in a more direct use, uh, what we call direct potable reuse. So it's really great to hear that your pioneering efforts are really catching on around the world, mm -hmm. really. And now before I go, I want to ask you about, we talked a little bit about desalination. So, I mean, what do you think in terms of the pros, the pros and cons of desalination? I think at some point in time, we will have to look to the ocean for a, another source of water. I mean, we talk about a portfolio approach, Jay. We, we got to look at stormwater capture. We've got to look at recycled water. We mentioned uh, water use efficiency or conservation. Uh, at some point in time, you, you know, it's, it's so unpredictable with climate change. I mean, if all of a sudden California gets shut off from its imported water supplies and has to solely rely on local supply, there just isn't enough wastewater that we can recycle to take care of the water demands in, in the area. And, and if that were the case, and that's a real extreme case in my opinion, it, it's only then that we would probably be developing uh, seawater desalination. 
Although, although there is a plant, as you may know, down in Carlsbad between LA and San Diego, it's about a 50 million gallon plant that's in operation, has been in operation. So, I mean, the process works. It can be built in an environmentally safe manner. So it, it is there, it's just a matter of cost. And I think somewhere in the future, it will become more real than it is today. You have spent so much time on this. And it's working out so well. How do you feel about what you've been able to pioneer? You know, I, I feel so blessed. I, I mean, to be given this opportunity, it just kind of fell on my lap. And I'm so thankful. And to, to see it work is just, uh, it, it's, it's so gratifying. Uh, however, I, obviously, I wouldn't have got here unless I had some really good people around me also. And it was a team effort. And everyone in the team was, uh, was committed to making sure that it, that it was going to work and that it, that it has worked. I mean, I do reflect on that and uh, consider myself very fortunate to be put into that position. I mean, you've done an amazing, amazing job. And I think 20, 30 years from now, you're going to look back and see this stuff all over the world. And we talk a lot about climate adaptation and adapting water management. But you're literally working on something that is having a huge impact. So, you know, kudos to you, Mike, and to the team at OCWD and the Groundwater Replenishment System. Just really fascinating work and incredible contribution. I really appreciate that, Jay. Thanks. Thanks so much. Mike Marcus is the general manager of the Orange County Water District in Fountain Valley, California. The American Society of Civil Engineers named Mike a pioneer in groundwater in 2017. As we heard from Mike, one day we may need to turn to the ocean for water we can drink, turning salt water into fresh. A team of researchers at Stanford is trying to make desalination more viable, more safe for the environment, and less costly. Dr. William Tarpe is an assistant professor of chemical engineering at Stanford University. Desalination has a ton of great opportunities, of course. Um, we need to make uh, not potable water into potable water, and so we need to use lots of non-traditional source waters, as we often call them. I think some of the major challenges with desalination are um, energy, of course, energy consumption and how to do this energy efficiently. And another that's sort of increasingly recognized is what to do with the saltier water that you make, the brine or the concentrate. And especially if you're, if you're doing inland desalination, the question is, where do you put the saltier waste product? So we're a lab focused almost completely on waste waters and how to, uh, what to do with them and how to make them more valuable uh, and kind of do two things at once, uh, remove pollutants and create something valuable from them. And so that's, this has been our entree into desalination is what to do with this very salty, very concentrated brine, especially when it's coming from processes like reverse osmosis. Uh, so we've been thinking a lot about what are some cost and energy efficient ways to recover valuable products from reverse osmosis concentrate. And we've been using electricity to do so because it can be cheap, especially if we're using renewable electrons, scalable, and also allows us a lot of modularity. 
That's our dream, is to be able to have this product, or multiple products actually, that come from this reverse osmosis concentrate waste stream. And so the products we're most considering right now are things like sodium hydroxide. So sodium chloride is the big salt that's in uh, this brine. So we can make sodium hydroxide and then hydrochloric acid. You might think about selling them and uh, like putting them into the commodity chemical market. What's really fun is there are also uses right at the desalination treatment plant uh, for these acids and bases. So you might be able to just kind of use them on site and then offset some of the purchases the desalination plant is making. I think we definitely need to keep doing more desalination, especially in arid regions and places stricken by drought. And I think we have the advantage of being able to start thinking about the waste products right now, rather than waiting 10 years and then trying to say like, oh my gosh, now we have this huge volume of, of waste brine, what are we going to do with it? And to be fair, lots of installations pump that brine into the ocean. And the jury is still out. There are conflicting reports on the effects of that in, in terms of aquatic ecosystems. But if there's one thing we know, it's that when you scale up discharge, it gets more complicated. It might be fine at the, at the level we're doing that now, but if the number of desalination plants increases a hundredfold, we probably need to start thinking about better waste management, concentrate management strategies. So there are lots of opportunities. Uh, so this is definitely a field where we could use more help and more brilliant minds. Dr. William Tarpe is an assistant professor of chemical engineering at Stanford University. That's it for this episode of What About Water? We record and produce this podcast on Treaty 6 territory, the homeland of First Nations and Métis people. It's produced by the Walrus Lab and the Global Institute for Water Security at the University of Saskatchewan. For more resources, check out whataboutwater.org. Our crew here at What About Water is Mark Ferguson, Aaron Stevens, Laura McFarlane, Fred Rebin, Jesse Widow, Sean Ahmed, and Andrea Rowe. Our audio engineer is Wayne Giesbrecht, and our producers are Farah Akhtar and Jen Cannell. What About Water is available on Spotify, Apple, and wherever you download your favorite podcasts. I'm Jay Famiglietti. Thanks for listening.